Morning, everybody. Uh, let's, let's have an interactive morning by, by way of hands. Who is like full of energy this morning? Losing an hour of sleep. <laughs> good, good to know there's like three of you. The rest of us, you can, you, your job for this service is to pray for the rest of us. Uh, that we can have energy and those of us with kids that when we get home today everyone's job is to pray that we have a little bit of extra patience uh, with all the kids that just lost an hour of sleep and won't cooperate with us. Um, So um, just want to give you a little bit of permission. Um, We don't need masks anymore so you're all welcome to take them off. Uh, that happened, so, I mean, I, I, I'm being, being funny for, for fun, but, uh, I mean, we should celebrate that today, like, we're, there's, there's some liberation happening in the city, which is really, really good to get to be a part of, but just remember, this is the, just the, the reminder, there are lots of people out there who are uncomfortable with COVID, and they're still going to be wearing masks, uh, and there's going to be people that are going to walk in the doors of this church, and they're going to be most comfortable with a mask on. Do not pass remarks about people wearing masks. Like, it's so unchristian of us. So when you're out there and you see someone with a mask on, just leave them to it and just internally pray for them if you feel the need. Um, but let's just honor people that have different convictions to us and have different fears to us um, as we walk in this season. So I think that's really important that we remember. So we are... <laughs> Sue's messed me up. Uh, <laughs> I said so. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, anyway. We are in a series where we're working our way through Zechariah, and uh, we are at this point in the book, right in the first half of the book, Zechariah has in one night eight different visions that are an encouragement to the people of Israel. So I'm going to say this every week just to remind us so that in 10 years' time when you're thinking about the book of Zechariah, you remember it. Um, that this point in this story, Zechariah have just come back from exile into Babylon. They've been returned to the land. Uh, they were sent back with the purpose of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the city. Uh, and they're in that process, but they get discouraged. And there's about a 20-year window from starting the work to them actually getting getting around to, to trying to finish the work that they're doing. So they're in this season where they're, when they're not being effective at doing the work that God has called them to do. And in the middle of this, on one night, February 15, 519, uh, Zechariah gets these eight visions. And so today we're going to look at the sixth of the eight visions. Um, little plug, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be gone in uh, Oklahoma for a conference of 24-7 prayer. Uh, Dr. Carl Kutz from Multnomah, who is a Hebrew professor and the chair of Bible and theology at the seminary, he's going to come. Uh, I was having coffee with him one day and telling him I was preaching on Zechariah, and he got super excited. So I was like, you're going to come preach when I'm gone. So he's going to be here for Zechariah 6, and you're going to be really blessed by that. Um, but today we're in the sixth of the visions that he has. So what I want to do, we're in Zechariah chapter 5. I'm going to read the sixth and seven visions together. So we're just going to read the whole chapter, and you'll see these, these two visions are connected. We're only going to tackle the first one this week, um, but we'll put them together so that we see the context and where it's going. So this is Zechariah chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. So I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. The angel asked me, what do you see? 
I answered, I see a flying scroll 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that's gone out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. I feel like I should read this a little more aggressively. Then the angel who was speaking to me the next vision came forward and said to me, look up and see what's appearing. And I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This is the word of the Lord. Gets weirder as it goes, right? You're like, what on earth? Uh, Ruben messaged me during the week, and he's like, I'm working on the, the songs, I'm, I'm praying, I'm trying to seek God, and I read through the passage, and what the heck? Um, so, so I said, have fun, buddy. Uh, so, um, so we're going to walk through these first four verses today, this vision of the flying scroll. And I want to, like, I'm going to be fairly simple today and just walk through some of the steps that happen in this vision. So I've got like five pieces that are here and then remind us of what all of this means in the end. So, so first of all, I want to look at the action that's happening in the passage. So as we're looking at this vision, um, I looked again, there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered him, a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. So, so in this vision, this giant scroll is flying. So here's a picture just to have in mind. Um, what he's envisioning is the, the Torah scroll that would be read in the temple. Remember that with all of these visions, all of the imagery is rooted somehow in the temple and the priesthood. Why? Because Zechariah is back there with the people to try and rebuild this temple. So all of these visions, weird as they are, are intended to help give them encouragement to complete the task that they're going to do. And all of it, even these two visions, believe it or not, it would be encouraging to them and it would motivate them to continue the work that they're doing and have them realize that the promise that God has given them that it will be completed will be completed. So all of the visions up till now have been really encouraging. Um, they've been really positive. Essentially, you're going to go in, you're going to be cleansed, everything's going to be going to be great. Head on in, do the work that you're going to do. These two visions um, are offering the same encouragement, but through the tackling of some negative things that are happening in the land. So you've got this flying scroll. Um, lots of commentators debate why is it flying. I don't know about you. When you read these things, I don't read it and go, "Why is it flying?" It's a dream, right? So I'm like. There's horns, and there's horses, and there's lampstands, like it's a dream. But lots of people are debating what it means. God's word is the banner over the people of Israel. And some people look at the word flying, and it's, it's really to do with the swiftness and the ability and the freedom that God's word has to do the things that it's accomplished. If you do a word study of the word flying, it's not going to give you any help. Um, so don't bother with that. But this is the vision. This giant scroll is flying uh, in the air over 
for the land and it's significant for them. Let me, let me show you some of the significance. So first of all, the action is the flying scroll. The second part of it, though, is the significance of the dimensions of this scroll. So I don't know how good you are at, at translating from ancient biblical uh, measurements into modern-day measurements. You know, that's what we all did in school. Uh, so he says, I looked again, there was a scroll. I see a scroll 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. So um, if you're familiar with measurements, cubits are variable. So if you take the smallest length of cubit, it's about 18 inches, and that would make this scroll that he's seeing 30 feet by 15 feet. I don't even know how to measure the length of this room. So just to say, this is a heck of a big scroll that is floating in the air above him. What's more significant about it is these, these measuring dimensions come up elsewhere in Scripture. Where do you think they might come up elsewhere in Scripture? In the temple. So we have one place in the temple, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3, um, where they talk about the, the portico or the porch of the temple, and that is 20 cubits by 30 cubits. Um, and, and so we're right there in the outskirts of the temple. But then as you read in other places, and they're talking about the, the most holy place inside the temple, they give this description. In a couple of places, they say it's, uh, it's 30 cubits wide. And then that's kind of, or long, I guess it doesn't matter what we, 30 cubits long. And that's kind of all they give you. And then they say they create these two giant arm winged cherubim. Each one has a wingspan of 10 cubits, and they sit from end to end in the room so that their wings touch each other and touch the walls. So we're 20 cubits long. There's other places where it tells you it's, it's 30 cubits long, uh, and then in the tent, you're going to make a tent, and you're going to make these curtains, and it gives the right number of curtains to add up to 20 cubits. So when he's seeing this scroll, it's not just this giant flying scroll, but this scroll is the dimensions of both the outer entrance into the temple and the dimensions of the most holy place. So as we're about to read that this scroll is going to communicate a curse over the land, the, the tie for the people listening to it is in God's house, the holiness that we are required to live, the place where his law is, or his word is taught and communicated, is the place from which the consequence ends up going out to the rest of the world. So they're tying right here the, the curse of the law, the role of the law, with the holiness of the temple. And so the people get this. Now, remember again, they're, they're sitting there trying to rebuild a temple that's been destroyed. So what are they doing right now? They're, they're sitting with blueprints, trying to lay foundations and get the building done properly. So they're familiar with the measurements. They know as soon as this priest who's in the temple and knows it so familiarly, as soon as he hears these words, his mind is immediately drawn to the temple and bringing that relationship in, the relationship between the holiness that the temple required. And, and what was the curse? The curse was an act of cleansing in the world. We tend to look at the law and we see the blessings and then we see the curses as this really negative thing. How could a loving God do this? But, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the cleansing process. There were blessings for those who walk with the Lord. And then there was a process of cleansing that would remove sin and brokenness from the rest of the world. So he's tying here uh, in this vision the relationship between the holiness of God uh, and the cleansing. So let's zoom in a little bit more and look at the content of this scroll. So he says to me, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. So 
In this moment, uh, we have all we can do with passages like this is give our best educated guesses at what's going on. So I don't want to communicate that everything here is hard, hard fact, but this is scholarly consensus over thousands of years of studying as they try and work out what these things mean. So first of all, um, the, this scroll as it's going over the land is unfurled. It's not a curled up scroll going over the land. It's a banner that's laid out to the dimensions of 30 by 20. And, and the significance of that is like as it's passing by, Zechariah can see what is written on the scroll. And it's passing over the whole land, letting them know that this scroll is open, so nobody in the land is without excuse uh, because the contents are revealed and made clear. And for the people of Israel, the law has been made clear to them. They know what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, And so just like in Romans, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, well, through creation, God's eternal... uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that no men are without excuse. That's Romans 1, 23. So we know um, that that this is is the way God works. He set up a system that reveals who he is and does it openly so that we have no excuse for not understanding what he's doing. And so in this vision, the same thing is happening. It's open, so no person in that land is without excuse to obey the things that are in, uh, in this scroll. So then the content that it's talking about, um, on one side, this, this uh, prohibition, every thief is going to be banished. On the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. So hidden in here are things, if you're really familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably there already in your mind. Um, when Moses goes up the mountain to get the, the, the Ten he gets the Ten Commandments from God, and they're given on two tablets. Uh, the scripture describes them as he comes down with the tablets, that the tablets are written on on both sides. Not how we draw it, right? They were probably rectangular, not like tombstones, the way we like to make them, uh, and, and all our art. Um, so, so when they're hearing this word, this document written on both sides automatically sparks back to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, in those Ten Commandments, the first few are refer to uh, how we relate to God. Uh, the latter half of it talks about our relationship to people. And what's actually happened on these on one side is this curse um, that every, every thief is going to be banished. And if you were to count down the laws, the middle law that would be on one tablet is the prohibition to not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, The middle uh, commandment on the second tablet addressing people would be the command not to steal. So what is happening as they're looking at this tablet, you've got commandment three and eight. So the middle and both sections are written on both sides of this scroll. And what does that mean? It means that that those two images that you're seeing are kind of summarizing and showing that this scroll contains the wholeness of the law, all of the Ten Commandments, intimacy with God and the ways we disrespect him, intimacy with people and the way we disrespect them is all being stylistically represented on this scroll. Um, why is it about thieves and why is it about swearing falsely? Um, most likely because of relations of injustice that have been happening to Israel and then issues of injustice that will be happening, happening as they return to the land. So let me just ask you a question. Um, do you believe people are generally good and kind people and always looking out for other people over themselves? I'm going to leave it rhetorically. Um, are there people in the world who are opportunistic and when something like COVID comes along, they set up a business by the airports. So if you're going to travel, they 
charge you $10,000 to get a COVID test so you can get on your plane. Um, there are opportunists everywhere uh, who capitalize on moments of tragedy to sell the product that they want to sell to make money. And so as you look at this nation of Israel returning to the land, reestablishing a nation, I think part of what God is doing here is warning them against the injustice that may arise as they reestablish themselves in the land. So God's heart through Scripture always for justice, and it's always against the oppressed. And you're going to see more of that in the, in the seventh vision um, that we read, that God is challenging materialism and idolatry and injustice against people. That's God's heart. The curse, the word for curse is also the word for oath. And so what you've got in this moment is this covenant that God has made with people. Um, and so he's made a covenant, it's floating above them, and the covenant is letting them know if you continue to walk in the ways that I've called you to, everything goes well for you in the land. As you're reestablishing yourself in the land and you're rebuilding the temple, if you revert back to what you did before, the same thing is going to happen. You're not guaranteed to stay here forever. It's conditional upon living the way that I've called you to live. So he's letting them know right at the beginning that just because I've forgiven you and brought you back to the land does not mean you can live however you want. And we know how the story goes because by the time Jesus is there, Rome has conquered Israel and people have been spread all over the world. Uh, through persecution. And so again, they disregard the law. They fail to do it. The, the, the temple gets completed. The sacrificial system is reenacted. And once again, they disregard God. And this curse is sent, uh, is, is sent upon them. We have to, as Christians, be very careful about our relationship to other people. God's heart uh, for justice means that he is adamantly opposed to the things in our lives that spark injustice, the, the wrong treatment of other people, the remarks we pass on others, the way we oppress and abuse other people, and in business, the way we mistreat our employees, the way we try and downpay other people so that we can elevate what we have, uh, the way we treat our neighbor, the way we other people, because your skin is that color, you're over there, because your education level is, is that, like, I'm better than you and I'm separate from you, because you're a different denomination to me, we're better than you. All of those things are issues of injustice as we other people. We put them in that category of other and separate ourselves from them. God's heart is against that, as we see in passages like this. So that's the content. Fourth thing, the destination of the scroll. He says to me, this is the curse that's going out over the whole land. Um, and so what's going on in this part? The word for land, Eretz, you can translate it like world. Uh, in the beginning, when God creates and he creates land, it's the word Eretz, which is like he makes everything that we stand on. Um, but it's also the word that is used all the way through the Old Testament for the land. So in some of your translations, when you read this, it says the curse has gone out over the whole earth. Uh, and other uh, translations specify that this has gone out over the land of Israel. And I think the NIV gets it right here. Um, why? Because in Scripture, the curse of the law is only for the people who are under the law. Um, so God wouldn't send this curse over the whole land and say, all those people that are not living under the law, this is for you. There's implications of that. 
but we're reestablishing the people in the land of Israel. So what's going on here in this destination? God is telling them that wickedness has no place in his covenant community as they are reestablishing themselves as his people in the land. And this is a promise to them that as they return to the land, anyone who is part of his people who are not living according to his covenant are going to be purged and cleansed from the land. So it's a promise we're going to reestablish you here. You're going to complete the temple. We're going to purge you of all the people. Their houses are going to crumble apart, like not like literal houses, but their home is going to crumble and their family fall apart because they're opposed to the things of God. And so it's a promise that your nation is going to be clean and pure and living with him. Things are going to be purged. And as we see from the next uh, vision, that all that wrongdoing is going to be sent back uh, to where it belongs. So that's the destination, the land, the messages for the people of Israel. What's the result? I'll send it out. It will enter the house of the thief, the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. One commentator writes, the assurance that God will cleanse his people in this fashion would have encouraged the builders, for it meant that God had not abandoned his people to their sin, forgetting his promise to make them a kingdom of priests. Sadly, centuries later, the nation was to experience another dispersion as they gave in uh, and failed in the covenant. So all of this vision is this promise, God will cleanse the land of sin. Uh, Why does that matter to them? It matters beyond just their people returning to the land. They're looking at enemy nations that are oppressing their country. They're looking at the fact that Babylon has has given up and dictating what is going on. And so this is a promise. God will cleanse it. And how is the land going to be purified? And this is the beauty for me in this passage. How is the land going to be purified? The Word of God is going to flow over the land and bring cleansing that ring any bells for the New Testament. This is a flying scroll, not a a dead piece of paper on the ground, a scroll with movement. A day is going to come when the living word is going to fly on a cloud. He's coming in the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down as we just sang. Our God is the Lamb, the Lion of Judah. And the declaration of the, 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 the word, the scroll, the law, they don't understand They see that the Mosaic law is going to do a cleansing work in their midst. They don't understand that this is a reference to Jesus, the living word who's going to come and bring cleansing from sin once and for all. He's going to do it on the cross where he defeats the power of sin. And then he's going to do it at the end where he returns and defeats sin and death for good. Uh, So it's a reference to the messianic age where Jesus is cleansing. It's a reference to the final age when sin is finally defeated. How do we know it's looking ahead? How do we know that's the way? Because we know the story. They didn't stay living holy and pure and cleansed. They reverted back to the old ways, and God's punishment had to come upon them once again. A couple of thoughts as I kind of bring this to a close today. Um, remember the name of the book. Remember back to week one. Well, uh, the name of the book is Zechariah. What does Zechariah mean? It means Yahweh remembers. And this is an encouragement to them because all the way through Scripture, when God remembers, it's his people who are suffering and in trouble. And it's like God remembered them. And he comes and intervenes on their behalf. 
Um, it's tied to his covenant. But, but the side that we don't think about often enough is just as he remembers the covenant and acts in response to that, he remembers the curses that he's placed on them as a consequence if they don't obey it. So just as he remembers his people, he remembers their sin. Only those who are secure in Jesus can know that when God remembers, it is not our sins he's remembering. He keeps account but as soon as we give our life to Christ, Christ wipes that slate clean. Our sinfulness is imputed, as the word we use. Our, Our sin is placed on Christ. On the cross, he dies and it is put to death. And then in his resurrection, his righteousness is imputed to us, and we receive the righteousness of Christ. So for Israel, their sins would be remembered if they're disobeying the covenant. For all the people in the world, apart from Jesus, sin is remembered and recorded. And in the end, we will be receiving the consequence and the judgment that our sin deserves. The only way that we are guaranteed to not have to face that consequence is that we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you are the king of the universe. Uh, I want to submit my life to you. I want you to receive my sin, and I want to receive your righteousness. I believe you died in my place, that I now have the righteousness of Christ. So when Yahweh remembers me, he remembers your righteousness given to me and not the brokenness. And that's what Shelby was sharing as you reflected on yesterday. We have a security in Christ that we're freed from our sin. They didn't know that yet. They didn't understand that at this point. But this past is pointing ahead to it. Again, if you remember back to the beginning, what was the opening setup of the whole book of Zechariah? Return to me, and I will return to you. This whole book, every one of these visions, every one of the prophecies that comes after it in the second half of the book, all of it is a call back to repentance. All of it is an invitation. Uh, if you don't walk with Jesus, it's an invitation to turn to him and he will turn to you. Um, if you're walking with Jesus, it's an invitation to return to him, knowing that he will then return to you. And so this is the call of the passage. The word of God is decisive. It explains what is and what isn't. It explains what is right and what is wrong. It is the ultimate source of judgment over our lives, over our churches, over the nation of Israel, and over the world. And so we've got to decide, are we going to come to the Word and accept what it says as it flies over the land, or are we going to turn our back on its truth and receive the consequence that God wants to give us? The whole book of, uh, the whole book of Zechariah is about this repentance piece, but it's all about renewal, the renewal that God wants to do in this nation And we see through the Bible and we see through all of church history that renewal and repentance come hand in hand. You don't get uh, renewal happening in someone's life without repentance being part of the process. Um, It's the way it goes. So in our church, we've said this before, why are we experiencing new life? Why are we experiencing renewal? Because we're walking in repentance from the way we used to function. We're turning outward instead of inward. We're learning to hear him rather than act on our own. We're changing our mindset. We're opening up to the new. We're shedding the things that we're holding in high esteem that were areas of division. That repentance brings renewal. And then as we think about and dream about, like my prayers right now, like I was praying at this morning at pre-service prayer, I want to see revival in my lifetime. I don't want to believe that the world's just going to go to pot and I've just got to watch it 
turn in a mess and Jesus is going to return. I want to see revival. Like, I read the stories of the past. I read these countries that are distant from God. I read nations that have turned their back on him, and God breaks in and moves in their midst. I long for that. And I keep praying, God, if, if Jesus, if you're coming back tomorrow, hallelujah. But if you're not coming back for a while, I want to see revival. Like, I want to see the sick healed. I want to see hard hearts falling on their knees before him. I want to see families restored. I want to see all of the adult video stores in Hillsborough disappear because so many people are coming to Jesus, they don't want them anymore. I want to see holiness and wholeness. I want to see the church on fire. I want to see Christians gathering every night to pray and to worship because they're so hungry for him. I want the stories that you hear in revivals where people are walking down the road and they hear someone singing in a church and they just fall on their knees at the side of the road weeping in repentance. And as the church is ending, someone walks out. Why are you crying here? I heard the songs. My heart was moved and they lead them to Christ. I want to see that. Maybe I'm foolish for longing for it. Uh, Maybe I'm going to spend a lot of energy and never get to see it, but this is the desire of my heart. I want to see revival in this day, but repentance always precedes revival. There has never been a revival in recorded history that didn't start by a group of people praying, and there's never been a revival in recorded history that didn't come with a move of repentance starting in the church. So we've got to evaluate our lives. We've got to look at this again and ask the question, like, how am I doing in the pursuit of holiness? God's not looking at you and adding up all your sins and saying, here's all the sins. We're going to write another one on the bottom of the list. God is saying, I've given you the righteousness of Christ, but the things standing between you and the desires of your heart, the things standing between us and the revival that he promises throughout Scripture is our wickedness. So we've got to ask the question, we know the things that are in the Bible. We know the things that it says to do and don't do. We know that it says to care for the poor, to honor the widow. We know it says to stand against injustice. We know it says to separate from sexual immorality, from divisions, from slander, from gossip, from materialism, from idolatry. We have to separate from those things. Those are the things in our life, not not cutting us off from Christ, but but causing barriers between uh, what the Spirit is doing in us and what it can produce in the world. It's producing barriers in us, and as we try and receive the love of the Father, uh, these things get in the way of it and muddy our hearts so that we can't receive it. So if we want to be a church that continues in this process of renewal, if we want to be a church that's continuing to grow and experience life, repentance is going to always precede revival, and repentance is going to go hand in hand with renewal. So we as a church have to do what we've been doing. We have to commit to know his word. We, we study the word. Why? Because it points us to the living word who is the one that wipes away our sin. It points us to the living word who is the one that casts final judgment over our lives. And he is the one who will in the end be, be seated on a throne and the people of the world who have rejected him are going to have to stand before him and experience the consequence of their rejection. So the invitation, as you picture a flying scroll over our church, I'll just ask you this. What do you think if God was to pick some specific things for your life or some specific things for this church? What do you think he'd have written on that scroll as it flies over your life or over the church? 
If you don't get these things sorted, it's going to rob you of the intimacy that you long for. If you don't deal with this issue with me, you're going to continue to walk with less than what I've offered you. If you continue to walk in these things, you'll see destruction because it will wreck your home. It will wreck your life as sin is given uh, permission in and through you. So what do you think he's asking you to turn from today? What do you think he's inviting you to repent of as we submit ourselves to his word, as we submit ourselves to the living word, and in the process as we rejoice that our sin has been moved as far as the east is from the west because of Jesus? So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, But I just, by way of response, like this is a a moment. You might want to grab a piece of paper, grab your phone, and uh, try and do it so the person next to you can't see you. Uh, what, what is the thing written on that scroll over your life that's the obstacles, the barriers, the sin, the brokenness that you're carrying and continuing to permit? Uh, and then today, perhaps take a moment, and for some people it's going to be write it and tear it up and throw it in the trash can. For some people it may be get on your knees as a sign of repentance. For some people you might want to just put your hands out and ask God to move in and through you. But let's continue in that posture of repentance as we submit ourselves to him and invite his renewing and reviving work in our midst.